I'm excited to be here. I'm excited that we're here. I'm excited to dig in and learn more about what God has for us. And I love that uh, Cliff was just up here talking about the creed, right? And I love that we ended that last song with, I mean, that, that is the words of the creed right there, just in a song format, right? It talks about what we believe. It talks about why we believe it. It says, you know, we believe in God the Father, um, you know, the Christ three in one. We believe in the virgin birth, the resurrection. It kind of outlines everything that we believe as Christians, which is exactly what the creed is, which is exactly what we've been talking about these past couple weeks with Pastor Frank. We've been taking the creed and going like phrase by phrase and line by line, and we've been saying, okay, we say this, and we say we believe in God the Father, but why? Like, why do we say that? Where, where biblically does it say why we believe that, right? And I think it's really cool to do that, because a lot of times we get up here, and we just, you know, we get up, then we sing, and we start singing these words, and it's just something that we do automatically, but we don't really know why we do it. We say, oh, yeah, I believe that, and then if somebody asks you why, you're like, oh, you know, I, I don't know. I just do, right? We have that blind faith, which is nice. You need that blind faith sometimes to say, yeah, you know what? I believe it. I do. Um, I don't need proof. I don't really need evidence, but I believe because that's what God says is that he tells me to believe, so I believe. But it's good to be able to have some sort of evidence or some sort of proof as well to say, okay, this is where the Bible says this, and this is why the Bible says we should believe this, right? So what we've been doing throughout this whole series is taking the Apostles' Creed line by line, and we've been giving biblical and textual evidence as to why we believe it and kind of what the background of it means. Um, I'm going to stand behind that, I think. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But first, Pastor Frank has started um, every single uh, one of these Apostles' Creed sermons by us standing up and reciting it together. Um, so if you would, please stand up with me as we say the Apostles' Creed. It should be on the screens for you. We got it, maybe? Yeah, there we go. All right. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And you guys can have a seat. I love that. It reminds me of um, it reminds me of like school, you know, when we get up every morning and like say the Pledge of Allegiance together. It's just kind of nice. I enjoy it. It takes me back. Um, so I have the um, I don't know if I want to call it the unfortunate um, sort of uh, I don't want to call it the unfortunate decision that I have to do here, but I have the pleasure. I guess let's say that. Let's let's be positive. I have the pleasure of bringing the phrase to you, one that is very complicated and one that is very intricate and one that really is something that I've had to work at. I'm not going to lie. I've been studying for a while trying to figure out exactly what this means. Um, and when Pastor Frank told me sort of where I fell in this sort of sermon series and what ver and what like kind of phrase I had, I was like, dude, you've got to be kidding me. Why in the world would you give me this one that, you know, I mean, you, you should take it, right? You're the lead pastor. You should take it. You should do the hard work, right? Um, so I have the phrase, he descended into hell and then rose again the third day, all right? Um, now, on its face, it, do, it doesn't sound too bad. You're like, oh, yeah, he, he, you know, he died, and then he rose again on the third day, right? Like, that's not too bad, right? Well, the more you dig in and the more you sort of think about it, it's kind of like, well, what did he do after he died? He was dead for three days. 
What did he do those three days? What happened to him? Where did he go? And I think that's an honest question to ask. I think that's an okay question to ask, right? He died for three days, and he was dead for three days. Where, what did he do? Where did he go? What happened to him? That's a normal question to ask because as humans, we, sort of, we don't really understand death. We don't really get it, right? Because it doesn't, once it happens to us, you know, we're not alive anymore to explain it to people. We're not alive anymore to try to figure out exactly what happened. So as death comes, it's sort of just, as we hear about death, it's sort of this natural sort of curiosity that we have to say, well, what happens? What happens when we die? So naturally, we want to know what happened when Jesus died, right? If he was dead for three days, that's cool that he rose again, but what was he doing those three days? And that's what we're going to try to talk about today. And the real honest answer to that question of what did he do for those three days is, I don't know. Um, actually, in all honesty, there's um, a lot of debate that has been going on for centuries about what exactly happened to Jesus when he died. There's no real black and white, honest, this is exactly what happened to Jesus when he died answer. Um, there's just not one. We can't find evidence of it. Um, so it's interesting that, that we talk about this, and it's interesting that this part after he died and before he rose again, this phrase, he descended into hell right? Um, because that's what the creed says. But do we have any evidence of that actually happening? Do we have any evidence of what Jesus was actually doing after he died? And really the sort of, like I said, honest answer to that is no, not really. Um, but if that's the case, then, then why do we say it? Why is it in the creed? Um, what, what's the point of it if, if we're not sure? And that's what I kind of want to try to spend the bulk of this this message doing is trying to figure out why that is in there and try to figure out why exactly we, we say that and try to figure out, well, maybe, you know, this is maybe one of the best things we, we can figure out about Jesus and about what happened to him um, after he died. So, dang it, I walk too much. Um, so to sort of before we start, there are two big things that I need to preface this message with. All right, two really important points to know before we really start jumping and diving in. The first is um, he descended into hell, um, causes a lot of controversy. Um, because, again, it doesn't necessarily um, say in the Bible that he descended into hell. You can't find those words anywhere in the Bible that says he descended into hell. You can't find it. It's not in there. Um, so a lot of people and a lot of biblical scholars who do much more research than I do and have dedicated their whole lives to, you know, sort of digging into what the Bible says, argue for generations over for years about why do we say that and why should we say that? And, you know, I grew up um, in a uh, Methodist church and I was talking to my mom this week and we used to recite the Apostles' Creed in the Methodist Church just like we did just now um, together every Sunday. It was something that we did every single Sunday as a church. And when I was talking to my mom about it, she was like, you know, we didn't say that at the Methodist Church. That line was just taken out. That wasn't in there. Um, they just kind of skipped over that part. And that's normal. Um, a lot of these creeds, depending on which version you read, people will take, word, will take that phrase out or keep that phrase in. Um, so it's interesting that even there are different versions of the creed that have that verse in there and that some that have taken it out. Because we can't find 100% biblical evidence, yes, this is what happened, 
right? Um, so I thought it was interesting that as we were reading the creed when I was younger, growing up in the Methodist church, we didn't say that. But now it's in here to this one. So I was really trying to figure out why does this phrase cause so much controversy? Um, and like I said, the first thing about that is the Bible nowhere explicitly says that Jesus descended into hell. You cannot find a single verse in the Bible that says that, which really that means the phrase itself isn't necessarily biblical. Um, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't say it, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't believe it. All that means is we have to dig a little more deeper and dig a little more into the context of, of the verses and figure out why this phrase is in there. Um, because you're not just going to be able to point to one verse and say, yep, there it is. He descended into hell. It's right there in John. It says it right there right? Like you can do that with the rest of them. But this one, you can't say that. You kind of have to dig and you kind of have to look around. You kind of have to look at some context clues to sort of determine the meaning of that phrase. And the second big part here is the earliest forms of the creed did not have this phrase in it. So when the Apostles' Creed was originally written in like 150 AD, right? Um, he descended into hell was not in it. Um, that was Added, actually added later, which is part of the reason why a lot of churches and a lot of denominations don't say that now, because it wasn't in the original creed. Um, it wasn't added until about three or 400 years later, around 500 AD. Um, so those are two kind of important points that I wanted to kind of preface this debate with, not really a debate, but sort of like this discussion with, just to make sure we understand where we're at. So where does this leave us? We know now that the phrase is not biblical because it's not in the Bible anywhere. And we know that it wasn't even in the original creed. So where does that leave us on this phrase? And it kind of leaves us with the rest of the world when it comes to biblical scholars. We don't know. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to determine where it comes from. We're trying to determine the best course of action. Um, so I do think, though, as I've been doing sort of this research and as I've sort of been doing um, kind of digging in and trying to figure out, okay, what exactly should we do here? Um, there are two big verses that I think we can look to that sort of illustrate he descended into hell. Um, and I want to look at those two verses and see if we can kind of figure out um, what exactly is going on with this phrase. So the first verse I want to be in is Colossians 2.15. Um, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, if not, it'll be on the screen. I'm going to jump around from sort of verse to verse to verse. So if you don't want to, you know, flip there, that's okay. Um, plus, I talk really fast, so you probably wouldn't have enough time to flip there anyway. Um, but Colossians 2.15, it says... And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So this is talking about Jesus, right? After he died on the cross, he disarmed the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, the phrase powers and authorities here um, does not actually refer to um, humans. It actually refers to sort of a spiritual sense, right? Um, he's talking about the powers and authorities from spiritual forces of evil rather than human beings. Um, if you take, and the reason why I didn't put the rest of the context in of this passage is because we don't have time. Um, but if you go to the rest of Colossians there, 15, or 2, um, and read the rest around verses 15, you will see that he is talking about the spiritual sort of sense there. Um, so when we say powers and authorities, we're talking about like spiritual evil, right? We're, we're talking about spiritual warfare here. So it's basically saying that 
after Jesus died on the cross, there was a spiritual victory. There was a spiritual victory. Um, And it says that it wasn't just a victory. It was a decisive victory. It was like a total 100% annihilation, right? And we know that because it says that Jesus disarmed them. He disarmed the enemies. He disarmed the forces of evil. Now, if you know anything about what the word disarming means, essentially that is taking away the weapon from an enemy, right? Like if somebody is pointing a gun at me, the only way that I can disarm them is to take that weapon away from them. Now, I can subdue them and I can like tie them up and I can, you know, put them in this corner back here. But if I don't take their gun from them, I'm still in danger, right? They can always try to figure out how to get out or they still have a weapon. Like, I would not feel comfortable even if I had somebody right there who was tied up, who was like, you know, whatever, taped to the glass shield or whatever I did to them. I would still not feel comfortable if I did not disarm them, if I did not take their gun away from them. Because that implies that they still have a fighting chance, right? Like, I'm giving them an out. I'm giving them a chance to be able to figure out how to fight back. But that's not what it says happened here. It says Jesus disarmed them. He took their weapons from them. He didn't just subdue them for the time being. He didn't just like tie them in a corner and left them there and said, hey, I won, but here, I'm just going to set you gently over here. No, he disarmed them. He took their weapons from them so they could not fight back. And I think that is extremely important because it's showing exactly what Jesus did. And that was he totally destroyed the forces of evil totally destroyed. He got rid of them. He kicked them out. He, he totally got rid of all of his enemies right when he died on the cross. Dying on the cross is what did that for him, is what did that for us. He defeated evil for us, right, in that spiritual realm, in that spiritual sense. He disarmed them. They can't fight back anymore. And that's why we always say, you know, don't, the, you know, Satan will tempt you. Don't worry. But Jesus has overcome, right? He has overcome the grave. He has overcome death. He has overcome that. And he defeated the enemies that you're fighting. So really, Satan is kind of like a toothless tiger, right? He took their, he took their weapons from them. There's nothing there. There's no bite there. There's a lot of roar. There's a lot of talking. But there's no bite. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross, as he took those weapons away from the evil that, that sort of creeps into our lives. It says not only did he, um, did he defeat them, if we could pull that verse back up, if you don't mind, um, he made a public spectacle of them. He didn't just take them and defeated them. He made sure everybody knew about it, too. So again, we're talking in sort of this spiritual realm, right? We're talking in sort of this spiritual sense. He took those defeated evil forces and he like paraded them, right? Saying, look at them, look at them who are defeated. Look, I've taken their weapons from them. Look, they're harmless. Look, they're helpless, right? They can't do anything. He made it public. He made it public. I can just imagine. And I, I, you know, I don't know if this is what happened. This is what I imagine happened. I imagine that, you know, Jesus, he went, he went in this, the spiritual sense, he went and he defeated all those demons. And then all of a sudden he took them and he paraded them through heaven. And he was like, look, look what I've done. Look what I did. I took all of this evil. Look at them. They, They can't hurt you anymore. They have no weapons to, to affect you. you. They can't do anything to you. He made it public. It was a public humiliation of the evil that hurts us. And I think that's an important image because it, if we, the more we think about it, the more we say, you know what? You're right. The Bible's right. Satan, his demons, whatever you want to call them, they can't hurt us anymore. 
Jesus defeated them. He disarmed them. He took their weapons away. And not only that, he showed us that. He paraded them in front of us. He said, look, you don't have anybody to fear. These people are beaten down. These demons are broken. These demons are harmless. Don't let them hurt you. Don't let, them, don't, don't let their, their talk, don't let their sort of roar affect you, right? They can't do anything. I've overcome that. Um, and I think that's a really pretty picture that's painted here by Jesus in the Bible is to show that we don't need to be afraid. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of like, um, well, I've been playing th- this video game recently, and it's like kind of like in the 1890s, like in the Old West back in the day, so it's like got cowboys and stuff. And I get this image of like this Old West cowboy hero, right? And he like walks into this town, and then all of a sudden, he just like takes over the entire town. He walks into their town, and he like starts, you know, like disarming the sheriff, and he like starts taking all the people and say, hey, this is my town now, right? Like, like you, you don't own this town anymore. I have come in, and I have taken over this town. And I think that sort of this image of what Jesus is doing is he's going to where those demons are. He's going to the spiritual realm where they are, and he is taking their life, their, 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 uh, their sort of what they own one by one, and he is being seen as this hero. And I think it's an awesome picture. Um, and so when Jesus died, there was something awesome that happened in the spiritual realm, something that we can't see. Because, I mean, we, we can't see into that sort of spiritual, you know, where, where you go when you die sort of realm, right? Like, we can't see into that. But something amazing and something awesome happened um, when, when Jesus died on the cross. And I think that that is sort of the picture that is, that is trying to be painted by this verse here. Um, so let's go to the next verse, which is 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. And um, I think this will show us, get a, give us more of a glimpse into what he descended into hell means. And I promise that I will tie both of these together in a minute. So 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. All right, so let's go back to verse 18 really quick. So verse 18 makes total sense, right? Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We were the unrighteous ones. He was the righteous one. It was this sort of substitution, right? Like he took on our sin for us, even though he was perfect, um, and he was put to death and then made alive in the spirit. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty easy verse. Now, the next one. And the subsequent verses after, um, not just 19, but like 20, 21, 22, I think it's all the way down to 25. Um, As I was sort of preparing for this, um, I read that this is considered to be one of the more complicated passages in the Bible. There are nine Greek words in 319, if we can pull that up for me, please. There are nine Greek words in there, and biblical scholars who, you know, devote their lives to studying this kind of stuff, they disagree on every single one of those nine words. So this is a passage that we're not really sure what Peter meant while he was writing it, um, because we disagree on all the words that are in there. So what I'm about to tell you, and I will preface this with with me, this, this is just my opinion. This is one of the things that I believe that this passage means. 
Now, again, it has been debated over centuries. There are multiple scholars who believe so many different things about this passage. I'm just going to show you, and I'm going to share with you through my just little bit of studying that I've done, what I believe it means. Um, And I kind of fall in line with sort of like the majority of people. Um, There's like a sort of majority opinion on what this means, and I sort of fall into that category. But I will say this, this is sort of just my opinion, all right? So verse 19 Um, some biblical translations, if we can actually go back to 18 really quickly. So in verse 18 there, it says he was made alive in the spirit towards the very bottom. The spirit is with a capital S, right? So that seems to denote, that means the Holy Spirit. He was made alive in the Holy Spirit. A lot of um, translations actually, sort of older translations like Greek and Hebrew and all the sort of back, that S is actually lowercase, it is not a capital S, which doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit, which basically means he was a made alive, Jesus was made alive in sort of like the spiritual realm. He was kind of into the spirit. He was turned into a spirit sort of because he was dead, right? So his spirit sort of, you know, went wherever it went. Um, and then it says in verse 19, after he was made alive in the spirit, meaning he is alive in sort of that spiritual realm, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Um, and most scholars will believe that um, that sort of means he went and was with and hanging out with all of the other people who had died in this spiritual realm. So he was sort of in this, uh, this sort of area with all of these different dead spirits. Now, again, there are probably a hundred different meanings behind that passage, um, but that's sort of the easiest one that makes most sense to me. Um, and here's why this is important. That, that's a bunch of like a bunch of stuff you don't need to care about. Um, but here's why I tell you that. And here's why this is so important. And I hope that we can bring this all together. The reason why this is important before we can draw some sort of conclusions about this is because it tells us what Jesus was doing. It tells us where Jesus's spirit went. Um, and it tells us kind of exactly why he died, right? It, it kind of brings about the, the fact of why Jesus died in the first place. What was the point? What was the purpose of him dying? Yeah, it was to, to forgive us of our sins. But then more than that, why, why is it so important that we have this in the creed about where he went after he died? And here's why it's important. And here's why I think that even though he descended into hell is not necessarily in the Bible, I think it's so important that we say it because of the magnitude of the meaning behind it. But before we can get there, there are three words that we need to look at, all right? And I hate having to give you a history lesson, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm a history teacher, I have to. Um, There are three words that we need to talk about that will help us understand what's going on. The first word is sheol, all right? Now, sheol is a Greek word. No, it's not. It's Hebrew. My bad. It is a very common Hebrew word in the Old Testament. So when this word sheol is used in the Old Testament, it refers to this sort of shadowy spiritual realm that we think of, right? When your body dies and your spirit goes into the spirit world, this is the word that describes that in the Old Testament, sheol. It's Hebrew, all right? The second word that we need to discuss is Hades. Hades is a Greek word, um, and we have sort of turned Hades into like this... uh, this sort of like underworld kind of type word because we think about like, you know, like the ancient, not ancient, uh, 
uh, what is it? Hercules, the movie Hercules, right? The Disney movie Hercules, um, the sort of god of the underworld. His name is Hades, and he's got like the, the blue hair like on fire and stuff. So we've sort of turned this word Hades to mean like, like hell or the underworld, when actually in Greek, it means the same thing as Sheol. It's just the Greek word for it. So it's this sort of spiritual realm. It doesn't necessarily mean hell. It just means that there is this sort of spiritual realm that your body enters when you die. All right? That's what Hades means. Now, the third is a Greek word as well. And that word is Jehana. And I'm sure I'm pronouncing that all wrong. Um, But Jehana is the typical, like, hell word that we think of. Jehana in Greek means, like, the place of fire and brimstone, the place of eternal torment. So that is the word for like hell that we traditionally think of. So there are three words. Those three words actually are all translated to the word hell in the Bible, but they mean kind of different things. Um, So kind of what I would argue here is that when we read the Apostles' Creed and we say he descended into hell, we automatically think of that word Jehanna. We automatically think of, oh, he went to the place of fire and brimstone. He went to the place of eternal torment, right? But really what I would argue is that these sort of older people who wrote the creed, when they wrote this verse in, when they wrote this phrase in, they didn't mean for it to mean the word Jehana. They meant probably closer to something like Sheol, where it was just he entered into the spiritual realm. He entered into the realm of the dead, not necessarily entered into the place of eternal torment of fire and brimstone. So it's kind of a sort of how you translate the word and what the intentional and what the original sort of intent of the word was that we kind of get this idea. And I would argue that the word hell in he descended into hell is more towards the Sheol um, meaning. Again, the meaning of like the shadowy spiritual realm. Now here's why it's important. All that to say this is why it's important. Because it shows that Jesus was totally and completely dead. He was totally and completely dead on that cross. And that's important to us because he was not spared not one single bit of pain of death. He knows exactly what death was like. He totally died. He wasn't like almost dead. He wasn't like somewhat dead. No, he was dead, dead. His spirit was taken from his body and his spirit entered this shadowy realm, this spiritual realm. So he could defeat all of these spiritual demons that we fight all the time. That's what's important about this verse he descended into hell is to show that he died so he could go and fight for us in the spiritual realm that we can't fight in. Because, see, we can't go, we can't enter the spirit realm and start fighting our demons for us in the spirit. Like, we can't, like, you know, like, throw fists up and start, like, punching these demons in the spiritual realm, right? Like, we can't do that. But Jesus can. And the reason why this was important and the reason why this, this phrase is in there is because he did that for us. And that's what it shows. He totally 100% died as a human and his spirit went and did work for us. And so when we talk about, again, descending into hell, I think we sort of translate it the wrong way. Um, So I gave you a lot of background and context and historical, you know, whatever. But all of that to say, even though this this phrase is not technically biblical because it's not in the Bible, um, I think that there's enough evidence to show why this verse is important and why this phrase is important and why we say it.
is because Jesus was, again, he fully experienced death. He's been there before. He came out victorious, right? What would it, I mean, would it mean anything different if he had not died, right? What if he did not die and he didn't fully take on those sins for us? That would change us because we would know that, hey, he, he didn't die like we're going to have to do. We have to face death. Jesus didn't have to do that. So yeah, we should be scared of death because we don't know what it's like. But Jesus did it. Jesus faced death. He died and he overcame by rising again three days later. It shows us that we don't have to be afraid of death. Because Jesus already did it for us. He overcame death, so we don't have to fear it. We don't have to go into that spiritual realm. We don't have to go into that spiritual world and fight our demons. Jesus did it for us. Jesus took that part on the cross for us, and something amazing and awesome happened, and he did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. So to answer the question, what was he doing those three days? I think that kind of answers the question. He was fighting our our demons for us. He was taking on all of our sins and he was burying them and defeating them and disarming them so we would never have to worry about it again. So we don't have to walk around on a daily basis and say, you know what? I just, the the sin is really weighing on me. The sin's really getting me. They're, they're, They're attacking me and they're attacking me and they're attacking me. Well, now we can say the reason why he died is so we can say, it can't affect us anymore. Satan, you cannot hurt us. You've been defeated. Jesus has overcome your death. Jesus has overcome whatever you can possibly throw at us. And I think that's why it's important. And that is what he was doing for those three days. He was fighting for you. He was fighting for me. And he was proving that we no longer need to fear death. On the third day, he rose again. Now, I love this part because this is something we don't have to really discuss, right? This is something everybody believes. We go from a phrase, he descended into hell, that people have been arguing over for 2,000 years, to this phrase that says, he rose again on the third day. Almost every denomination of Christianity believes that. It's not something to argue. It's not something to debate. You can find it many times in the Bible. So you don't really have to worry about that. It is the foundational bedrock of Christianity. Jesus rose again on the third day. Everybody believes it. Um, So because everybody believes it, I I think we don't really think about it very often, right? Like, yeah, 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 we know. But why is it important? Why is it important that he rose again? Why Why did he just not die and then defeat the demons for us and then, you know, just stay in heaven? Why did he come back? What's the point of the resurrection? Why is it important? And I think because it's sort of so common that we say that and we hear it all the time, I think it's important for us to really kind of think about why, why is it important? Um, what, what's the significance behind the resurrection? And I think there are, um, there's a section of verses in 1 Corinthians that really point that out. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we're going to start in verse 17. And it says, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. Futile, futile. You are still in your sins. If Christ had not been resurrection, if Christ had not been risen, if Christ had not been resurrected, your faith is futile. Your futile means useless. It means um, baseless. It means not needed, right? It means worthless. Our faith is nothing if Christ had not been raised. It doesn't mean anything. We believe that he was raised. 
If we all of a sudden don't believe that he was raised, then we'll question everything, right? If you question one thing, you might as well just question everything if you don't believe all of it 100%. If we don't believe that he had not been raised, or because there is some speculation. Some people all throughout history have said, I found Jesus' bones in a box next to Jerusalem, right? Like There's been all kinds of people who have said that. So if you don't believe that he was resurrected, if you don't believe in that sort of being raised up, your faith is useless. You have to believe. And it says you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. This verse also points out that Jesus' death can't save us if he wasn't resurrected. That's what it's about. It's, about. it's about death and then being resurrected into a new life, right? Sort of symbolizes the baptism. About how you, you were dead in your sins, but, but we bring about new life. If he would have stayed dead and he would not have resurrected, you'd still be in your sins you would still have to deal with that constant battle. The resurrection finished the job. In fact, that's sort of, the resurrection is what makes Christianity different from all the rest of the religions in the world. Um, If you, because we're the only ones who believe that our God was resurrected, that our person that we worship was resurrected. If you go to any tomb of like a founder of a religion and like call roll, um, you, you would hear them say, yeah, I'm here, right? Like if you go to Muhammad's grave, he'd say, here, right? He's in there. They go and worship it. If you go to Buddha, say, here, Confucius, here, right? They're all there. All their bodies are buried. But if you go to the tomb of where Jesus was, say, Jesus, and you called his name, you wouldn't hear anything because he's resurrected. He's not there. That's what makes Christianity different from all the other world religions, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And there are plenty, this is just one, there are plenty of verses throughout the Bible that say, yes, Christ has risen. That's what we celebrate Easter for, right? Our, our, our Lord has, has been resurrected. Christ Jesus has been resurrected. And... As I sort of kind of wrap this all together, um, somebody asked me one time, they said, do you, do you, do you really believe in, in, in what you say you do? Do you really believe that Jesus was resurrected? Like, how is that possible? Like, how in the world do you believe that? And it's an interesting question, right? Um, and, and the question more so was, have I ever doubted anything that, that I'm up here saying or that I talk to people about, right? And the honest answer is, yeah, of course. I think everybody has at one point or another. And I don't take what I do lightly, right? Like, I'm up here and you guys are listening to what I have to say. I, I don't take that, like, I take that very seriously. But then there are times when I could go home and I could say, you know what, do I really believe what I told them? Because I'm up here preaching it, and I'm up here speaking it to you, but do I actually believe it in my heart? So it's interesting to think that, and I'll be honest with you, a long time ago, yeah, I would have. There was a season in my life where I doubted almost everything about the Bible. I wanted nothing to do with it. But I made a decision, and I made one conscious decision, and I said, you know what? I'm going to go all in. I'm going to go all in on what the Bible says. I'm going to go all in on this Apostles' Creed. I'm going to go all in on the creed that we believe about what the Bible says and about who Jesus is and about who God is. I'm going to go all in. I'm going to believe it. And since then, 
since then, I've not doubted a single thing about the Bible. I've not doubted a single thing. And I love that because, you know, I, 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 can, feel, I can feel free. I can say, you know what? Yes, Jesus died for me. And then he rose again. We can celebrate Easter, right? Like, what is Christianity without Easter? What is Christianity without him rising again from the dead? And we can be victorious. He overcame death. That's the whole point of Jesus. He overcame death, so we didn't have to worry about it. It reminds me of, um, and I'll use this illustration to kind of close here. Um, I liked, well, not so much anymore, um, but I used to like watching, for some really odd reason, I used to like watching, like, the, the World Series of Poker on ESPN all the time. Not because I, you know, like to play cards or anything, because I don't, but I like it. Because I like to watch the people. If you've ever watched any sort of card game and anybody who has any sort of like can pick up on human behavior, it is so cool. Because these people who are like professional poker players, like they can look at the person next to them and say, hey, I bet you have this hand. And they do. They say, hey, I bet you have nothing. I bet you have this. I bet you have this. And they do. They say, I bet you have nothing because you like itched your cheek like four times. So that means I know you have nothing, right? Like it is, it is sort of this study and science of behavior and human behavior. And I also love the high stakes of it all. I love the pressure, right? I'll watch any sport if there's pressure to it. I'll watch any sport as long as it's competitive. Um, I'll watch, I mean, they have like college cornhole competitions on ESPN now for some reason. And I watch the heck out of that because there's pressure to it. There's something to win and something to lose. I'll watch competitive chess for all I care. As long as there's pressure and there's something competitive, I'll watch it. Poker's the same way. It is some of the highest stakes. There are millions of dollars on the line. And it all comes down to one moment. It comes down to one moment where a player decides Hey, I'm all in. They, take, they think they have a good hand. They take the hand that they're dealt, and they say, hey, I'm all in. They take all of their chips, and they push it to the middle of the table. Most of the time, the pressure is so big, they don't even want to look at it. They, like, push all their chips to the middle. They flip their cards over, and then they, like, walk away. They're like, I don't even want to know what happens, right? Millions of dollars on the line. I love it. That is the difference between that person being a winner and that person being a loser. One moment of going all in. It's either going to reward you or it's going to destroy you. And most of the time, because they're good at what they do, they win. And here's the moment, and here's why, I, here's why I'm using this illustration to wrap it up. It was the best decision of my life to go all in on Jesus. It was the best decision of my life to take the hands that I was dealt. It may not have been the best hand I was dealt, these poker players, they go all in on really awful hands, right? But it's what they were dealt. They can't change that. They take their hand and they take everything they have and they push it to the middle and say, I'm all in. Best decision I made was, yeah, I, I didn't have the best hand dealt to me. And you know what? I went all in anyway. And I believed in Jesus. I believed that he was God the Father. I believed in the Holy Spirit. I believed he was three in one. I believed in the virgin birth. I said, I am all in on this whole Jesus thing. And I promise you, if you will do the same thing, if you will take that one high stakes moment of pressure and you will say, I may not have the best hand. I know I haven't been dealt the best thing in life. I know I may not be the best, but I'm gonna take what little I have or what a lot I have and I'm gonna push it to the middle and I'm gonna trust that God is going to have me. I trust that God is going to win this hand for me. 
So what I would encourage you to do is when we have phrases like this in the creed that says he descended into hell, he rose again. You know what? Go all in and believe it. I promise it'll be the best decision that you make. I promise it'll be the best thing for your life is for you to go all in. Just, just believe. So as we go through the rest of this creed as well, because we're, we've still got a couple more weeks after this, I would encourage you that after this is all said and done, and I'm not asking you to do it now because we're not through the creed, but after we, we, we get this done and a lot of you are going through it in your, um, in your small groups, in your Bible study, or if you're doing it at home by yourself, once you get through it, once you get through everything, once you realize the reason why we say what we say and why we believe what we believe, once that happens, make the decision to go all in on it. Make the decision to say, you know what? I believe every single bit of this and I'm going to trust and give you know, that, that belief to, to God because he deserves it. So that is what I'm gonna ask you to, to start to think about over these next couple of weeks as we sort of wrap this series down is go all in on God. Go all in on Jesus. Go all in on Christianity. I promise it will help you. And I promise that you, you, will, you will get so many blessings that you don't even know you need. Um, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of stuff that's happened in my life that I didn't even imagine. That I didn't even think I needed until God gave it to me. So please start thinking about that. Start praying to God. Say, God, please help me go all in. I have a problem with believing. I have a problem with not having proof. I have a problem with needing evidence for absolutely everything. God, please give me the strength to believe even when it seems like there is no other way.